Travelling on the Damery bus from my home to Salisbury is an event in itself. The bus company's website and bus stop timetables offer no reliable information on the service. We rely upon memory that there is a bus leaving the village sometime between 9.20 and 9.40am and the hope that it continues. So here we are on the bus filled with retired professionals looking out at the summer landscape. There are plenty of horses and sheep in fields, signs of turf cutting and wheat ripening. We see deer, pheasant, buzzards and no one in the fields. We pass by Ashmore with its iconic dew pond, ill-kempt wood and no indigenous population. Not far from society photographer Cecil Beaton's old home, Ashcombe House, now occupied by Mr and Mrs Ritchie. The bus falters going uphill as we leave Fontmore Magna and descend deeper into Cranbourne Chase, a downland with dense woodland vestiges, Neolithic and Bronze Age earthworks that straddles parts of Dorset, Hampshire and Wiltshire. The name refers to the land as a place of hunting and has been sparsely populated since Saxon times. It is easy to see the contours of history here. There are houses and entrances designed by the dramatist and architect John van Brugge and humbler buildings that carry with them the association of bloody struggles between landowners with their retinue of keepers, foresters and verderers and poachers. Open an OS map and you will see that struggle in location and place names around the chase. Dominated by the cathedral with its tall spire and chapter house holding one of the four surviving copies of the Magna Carta, Salisbury is a compact, lively city on the edge of the plain, a barren chalk plateau to the northwest of the chase. In recent years, it has suffered from an overdose of literature development officers and writers and residents who visit and leave little behind. This has been happening throughout the country and does not produce local literary communities. In fact, they've been counterproductive. The idea of introducing outsiders as experts, often people at the beginning of their career and without much literary experience, is fatally flawed and a waste of public money. It is a fragmented poetry scene with people travelling in a 30 mile radius to attend poetry events lacking in leadership and direction. There are no magazines or poetry publishers to support the local scene. Yet it has an international arts festival and a vast literary history from Sir Philip Sidney, William Brown, through George Herbert, Henry Fielding, to Hazlitt, Trollope, Hardy, W.H. Hudson, William Golding and David Gascoigne. John Constable's painting, The Cathedral from the Bishop's Grounds, is often cited as one of England's best views. It is an extraordinary confluence of place, spirit and identity, and is worth investigating in terms of how poets have used the confluence to probe history, identity and the Georgic.
It was in March 1913 that poet Edward Thomas crossed over Harnham Bridge near the cathedral. With the tiled roofs are so mossy, and went up under that bank of sombre shimmering ivy just to look where the roads branch. On his literary pilgrimage by bicycle from Clapham in London to the Quantock Hills and Coleridge's home at Nether Stowey. Thomas's journey with the other man, who eats brown bread and monkey nuts, the status of whom is uncertain, has a potent relevance. Although on the surface it is a journey searching for signs of spring and observing what is present through earlier poetic responses, it is also a journey of self-discovery, written against the threat of a world war and a probing of identity, the unconscious, spiritual purpose and landscape looking for rebirth. In Pursuit of Spring is a search for poetic understanding with Coleridge the Dissenter, the man in black, as Hazlitt called him, as a figurative destination. That is to say, it is a journey that extends from the superficial to the dark and disturbing. Thomas was moved to have the other man quote in full and with relish George Herbert's sonnet on sin on his way to St Andrew's Bemerton, where Herbert was rector and died in 1633. It is a chilly, tiny, low Anglican church with a strong atmosphere of piety, a stained glass portrait of Herbert and well worth a visit. The adjacent old rectory, rebuilt by Herbert, is now in private hands. My phone call asking to visit was declined. Thomas cycles on through the plain with its five river valleys interrupted only by a railway line and military camps, noting in this remote and treeless landscape the rooks, peewits and larks. Like Coleridge, Thomas has a fondness for birds. He notes that there are more birds than people in Salisbury that Sunday morning and is less godly than his alter ego, the other man. Just outside Earlstoke, he meets two ex-sailors, vagrants who mentioned the Titanic, bless him and appear to be asking for money, which he refuses to give and cycles on. He is more concerned with his uneasy conscience than whether the beggars slept dry and ate enough. Thomas is arguing with himself about the Christian idea of charity so beloved by Herbert. He is struck by seeing the whole through the inner and outer nature of small things, through the particulars of place, through oppositions, the mildness and wildness of nature, those defining imaginative characteristics he also saw in Coleridge. Salisbury, its river confluence, the plain and Stonehenge, feature in Song 3 of Michael Drayton's Polyolbion, or a choreographical description, 1612. A curious work written in rhyming couplets of twelve syllable lines and engraved maps decorated with goddesses and allegorical figures. Here the traveller poet uses the marriage and competition between rivers as a unifying symbol. Drayton was part of the Sydney Spencer literary grouping that came to nearby Wilton House 
where Sir Philip Sidney had written most of the Arcadia, a prose romance that later so outraged Hazlitt that he called it one of the greatest monuments of abuse of intellectual power upon record, and a defence of poetry which defends poetry as the highest art and equal of nature under God. Mary Herbert, Countess of Pembroke, preserved and published her brother's work after his death in 1586 and completed his translation of the Psalms and made Wilton into a college of learning, poetry and alchemy. It was the spiritual centre of the Sidney Spencer movement in English poetry, with many links to poets and writers associated with the Mermaid Tavern in London. Mary was patron to Samuel Daniel, Ben Jonson, Drayton and William Brown. Shakespeare is thought to have attended the 1603 royal performance of As You Like It at Wilton. Dunn is said to have visited. Raleigh's half-brother, Adrian Gilbert, was a resident advisor, and Fulk Greville, as elder statesman of the group, was Mary's most trusted ally. Drayton's attempt to preserve Albion's history through topography and to forge a national identity was inspired by William Camden's Britannia, 1586. The choreography of the book's title refers to the physical and historical description of a single locality. These included written itineraries and routes across a territory with particular histories, points of interest and local law. The controlling image of the river stems from Edmund Spencer's Prolathemion. This idea and image fuels Polyobian's celebration of national diversity, with rivers as loci of conflict and song serving to unify the country. Drayton essentially produces a map of England based upon rivers and ancient monuments that is linked to ideas of visual memory and national identity. The final part of Book One ends with, with a celebration of Kentish independence and liberty against Norman yoke, and placing Kent as the foremost English shire. William Wordsworth echoes this into The Men of Kent, one of the sonnets dedicated to liberty in Poems 1807. Ye of yore did from the Norman win a gallant wreath, confirm the charters, that were yours before. This patriotism is rooted not in Westminster, but in the tradition of local defence of liberty. Wordsworth's debt to Drayton is evinced by the many references to rivers and can be read as a kind of updated sense of history through topography. Wordsworth, as a public poet, helped the idea of history through topography farther permeate English culture and identity. Tony Blair's new Labour government in 1997 somewhat incoherently tried to produce 
a national brand with its slogan Cool Britannia, based on one of Ben and Jerry's ice creams, using pop musicians of symbols of youthful vibrancy and referring to a transient, fashionable London scene. It completely misread how national identity comes to be ingrained as an image and viewpoint, as well as the politics behind such images and viewpoint. Here's E.M. Forster in The Longest Journey, 1907. He saw how all the water converges at Salisbury, how Salisbury lies in a shallow basin just at the change of soil. He saw to the north the plain and the stream of the Cad flowing down from it with a tributary that broke out suddenly as chalk streams do. One village had clustered round the source and clothed itself with trees. He saw Old Serum and hints of the Avon Valley and the land above Stonehenge. And behind him he saw the great wood beginning unobtrusively, as if the down too needed shaving and into it the road to London slipped, covering the bushes with white dust. Chalk made the dust white, chalk made the water clear, chalk made the clean rolling outlines of the land, and favoured the grass and the distant coronels of trees. Here is the heart of our island, the Chilterns, the North Downs, the South Downs radiate hence. The fibres of England unite in Wiltshire, and did we condescend to worship her, here we should erect our national shrine. In this symbolic and philosophical novel which contrasts the local waterways and slowly modulating chalk downs with the quadrangular academic world of Cambridge, Ricky, the lonely and deformed character, recites lines from Percy Shelley's Epipsychidion, 1821, at the Rings, that established the novel's theme and gives it its title. I was never attached to that great sect, whose doctrine is that each one should select, out of the world a mistress or a friend, and all the rest, though fair and wise, commend to code oblivion, though it is the code of modern morals and the beaten road, which those poor slaves with weary footsteps tread, by the broad highway of the world, and so, with one sad friend, perhaps a jealous foe, the dreariest and longest journey go. Foster draws upon Shelley's poetry with its ecological reading, G. E. Moore's Principia Ethica, Greek and Wagnerian mythology within a mystical and symbolic structure to delineate his character's difficulties in choosing a life companion. Behind all this, though, Forster acknowledges an originating experience of talking to a young lame shepherd on Figsbury's rings, who he offers a tip of a sixpence and is declined. The narrator in The Longest Journey sees Salisbury as a living creature 
with powers of movement and ugly cataracts of brick looking outwards at a pagan entrenchment and away from the cathedral, neglecting the poise of the earth and the sentiment she has decreed. They are the modern spirit, he observes. He goes on in an unconscious echo of Drayton, although possibly not of Wordsworth. Streams do divide, distances do still exist. It is easier to know men in your valley than those who live in the next. It is easier to know men well. The country is not paradise, an embedded reference to both Sydney's Arcadia and Milton, and can show the vices that grieve a good man everywhere. But there is room and leisure. Forster's sense of national identity is defined like Wordsworth by topography and regionalism, and is in the tradition of Camden and Drayton. Wordsworth walked across the Salisbury Plain in August 1793, an experience that produced the Salisbury Plain poems, The Female Vagrant, first published in Lyrical Ballads, and fed in to the prelude. He changed these poems several times. The unpublished Adventures on Salisbury Plain, 1795, a dark Gothic poem concerns a sailor who, having been press-ganged into the navy after war service, becomes a murderer and robber to provide for his family. Penniless and an outlaw, he meets a soldier's widow as he walks across the plain. She is homeless, penniless, has lost her family. Both are outcasts and face the inhumanity of justice. The poem relentlessly shows the human impact of war and links human waste to the historical landscape. This poem was later revised as Guilt and Sorrow or Incidents upon Salisbury Plain, 1842. With the image of the sailor's suicide, hung high in iron case, removed. This self-censoring of the younger radical Wordsworth is a good example of how the struggles of the rural poor and outcasts can be written out of memory. J. H. Prynne in Field Notes, The Solitary Reaper and Others, points out that W. H. Hudson, on his cycle journey through the Salisbury Plain, writes about a young boy, a, boor, a bird scarer, running across the ploughed field towards the road merely to see him pass by, and consciously neutralises Allegaic landscape writing by the avoidance of any polemical, ecological or contemplative input. It is a low-pitch, non-poetic narration without pathos or melancholy, in contrast to Wordsworth's high-pitched narration. Hudson's non-committal tones and registers, omitting the rawness of the Georgic, caught the Edwardian mood of nostalgia for rural ways and were immensely popular. Bird scaring, though, did not die out in Dorset until the 1930s. One of this summer's other recommended reads has been Roger Deakin's Wildwood, A Journey Through Trees, which will surely join Waterlog, his aquatic journey through Britain, as a classic of nature writing in the tradition of Gilbert White and John Stuart Collis. Wildwood argues, echoing W.A. Jordan, that the enemies of woods are always the enemies of culture and humanity. 
and supports this with references from William Cobbett, John Ruskin and various poets. Deakin wanders from place to place seeking out what uh, Edward Thomas called the fifth element, wood. He succeeds in his aim to excite a feeling for the importance of trees through a greater understanding of them, by showing the links between the greenwood spirit and democratic freedom. In particular, he sketches the history of Great Wishford's 1603 Charter of Rights to collect wood in the Royal Forest of Groverley, some six miles outside of Salisbury, and the annual May celebration of Oak Apple Day. This requires the whole village to go in a dance to Salisbury Cathedral. The villagers legally protected their wood rights at court in 1292, 1318, 1332 and 1825 from landowners eager, eager to use the wood for hunting. The Earl of Pembroke had the manor and wood enclosed in 1809, creating more restrictions that worsened the impact of the 1820s economic depression. More disputes followed, leading in 1892 to the formation of the Oak Apple Club in the village, under the Labour banner Unity as Strength, to represent wood rights and customs and perpetuate the May celebrations. These involve pagan fertility and other rituals at the parish church in Salisbury Cathedral. The acorn and oak tree motifs were part of the socialist and anarchist movement's defence of liberties. Further disputes occurred in 1931 and 1933, and it wasn't until 1987 that a new accord was reached allowing the villagers their full rights. The annual Oak Apple Day continues and is an apt reminder of legal victory.